0: Don't you just love generous people? You know, people who aren't just generous with their stuff, but people who are generous with their time and their affection, their attention, people that are generous with patience and grace, pretty much whatever they have. You know, people like that. I I think the truth is generous people can really be wonderful people to be around because at their core, of course, they're givers. It's a fundamental uh, part of their makeup. And so when you're around a generous person, you tend to benefit from that giving nature because instead of thinking about themselves constantly, uh, they're usually thinking about others, thinking about what they can give or what they can do for others, which can be really refreshing and life-giving for those around them. In fact, uh, generous people can really fill your tank when you're empty because they'd rather give to you uh, than try and take something from you. Conversely selfish people greedy people can really drain your tank you ever been around someone who seems to only think about themselves all the time you know they they talk about themselves they seem to think about themselves and focus on what they want and how they feel all of the time and and so they never ask you how you're doing when you see them they never inquire about your needs or or your life or how you might feel and i think over time that can be quite draining they, they never inquire uh, about how you're doing. And if you spend too much time, I think, around selfish, greedy people, it can suck the life right out of you. Do you know what I mean? It's why you see so many moms with little children feeling so worn out so very often. You know, we love our kids, obviously, but the fact is very young children, generally speaking, think about themselves most of the time, don't they? They're needy, and so you have these little people who take, 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 take all the time. And these moms who give, 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 give back all the time, which can be completely exhausting. It's a fact. And yet, there are adults who are much the same way. They never seem to pour into anyone else's life. They rarely think about what they can do for others because they're takers, always looking for what they can get from other people. And I think, to be fair, those are probably the two extremes people uh who are extravagantly generous and then those who are excessively selfish or greedy the truth is most of us probably fall somewhere in between those two extremes i think most of us genuinely want to do for others at times and yet there are other times when we want to do for ourselves and that is especially true when it comes to money uh, which is not a subject that we talk about much around here to be honest in fact if you've been here with us for the past four years since we started this church, you can attest to the fact to those that haven't that I've actually never preached a sermon on money or giving. We, we did talk about financial commitments one Sunday as we were in the process of purchasing these new facilities, these two buildings here about a year ago, but I've actually never preached a sermon on giving before. And, and by the way, I'm not proud of that. It's just the truth because I've chosen... To avoid that subject like the plague, Uh, I have been fearful of being categorized as one of those preachers who only cares about your money, which is, uh, in truth, nothing more than pride on my part, so let's just call it what it is. But the fact remains, I've never preached on giving before, which has been a failure for me. I've been an error in that regard because I, I am and I have been adamant since the day we started the church that everything that comes from this pulpit would be Word-centered, Gospel-centered, Christ-centered. And I have, with fear and trembling, spent many, many, many hours every single week without fail preparing these sermons by researching and reading and studying and praying over the Scriptures because it's very important to me that I teach God's Word as accurately and honestly as I can. But that also means that I can't just teach the parts that I like. Because if I'm going to be true to that commitment to teach the whole counsel of God, all of His Word, then I also have to teach the parts that are uncomfortable, which for me includes talking about money, I'll just tell you. So please understand, and again, if you're a regular attender, then you already know all this. So I'm saying this predominantly for the benefit of all of those visiting with us today or those who may be new here. At Upcountry Church, As a matter of course, each week we work through books of the Bible, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because that is what I believe God has called me to do. Because no matter how clever or creative or innovative or inspirational I might ever be, I will never be able to improve on His Word. So I gave up trying to do that years ago. Instead of coming up with a really creative and catchy inspirational message and then packing a lot of random verses around that and then preaching it with all of the enthusiasm that I can muster, which I used to do many years ago. I decided instead that I would just open the Bible and teach His Word as it is written. And honestly, when we started this church, I thought we would probably have about 30 people come forever because that method of teaching doesn't really line up with the current systems or, or popular methods that are being taught in a lot of church training seminars for pastors, at least not the ones that I've attended which is fine, by the way. I'm not being critical of anyone else. Please understand that God calls different pastors with different giftings and convictions to lead different churches in a lot of different ways, which is all good, as long as we're teaching the Word of God along the way, because that is our mandate as pastors. It's in Tim, uh, Titus 1.9, 2 Timothy 4, two, and there are examples of it all through the New Testament as well. Martin Luther said... The highest worship of God is the preaching of the word. And so I've said from the beginning that I simply want this church to be whatever God wants it to be. So I'm not going to try to be anyone else. I'm just going to do my best to be faithful to what he's called me to do and then let him grow the church however he wants to after that. And much to my great surprise, uh, more than 30 people came. And every week more people come. And of course I finally realized that what people need And what I think a lot of people want is not so much to hear from a really cool, creative, motivational, and inspirational speaker. I think what people really want is to hear from God. People are hungry for the Word of God, which is why teaching the Bible the way that we do, word for word, line by line, verse by verse, is so much a part of who we are at this church. Not because it makes us look good. Not because it makes me look cool. Because it doesn't but because that is the way to guarantee that we're getting his word for us and not my word for us or anyone else's word for us for that matter. It's the difference between saying, church, I have a word for you today and saying, church, I have God's word for you today. And so we just spent nine months or better working through the gospel according to John, which we finished up last Sunday, which was fantastic We alternate between books of the New Testament and those of the Old Testament, so in two weeks from today, we're going to begin a new sermon series, working our way through the book of Esther, which is going to be great. But about once a year or so, we will pause for a week or two on working our way through a book of the Bible, and we'll focus on a section of text from one or more of those books that address a specific topic or a subject that may be timely for our church, and this happens to be one of those moments in our history because, uh, as you can probably see if you've been around very long, we're on the threshold of expanding our ministry on several fronts, and one of the most indispensable ingredients to the fuel that keeps healthy, thriving, and growing churches healthy, thriving, and growing is generous people. So today and next Sunday, we're going to talk about generosity in a two-part sermon that focuses on the subject of our giving. Okay? So this morning we're going to concentrate primarily on the spiritual aspects of giving, and then next Sunday we'll look at the practical aspects of giving, which will be just that. It'll be a very practical message as we discuss some of the vision for this church for the near future and some of the areas of ministry that we are planning to expand and grow as we move forward. And then as I said, the uh, the following week we'll begin working through the book of Esther. And so as we talk about giving today, We're going to talk about what God's Word says, of course, about giving. And my prayer for you and for me is that no matter where we happen to be on that continuum of generosity, whether you're already very generous or maybe not so much, my prayer and my hope is that through this brief two-week study that we will all become more generous people as we discover together the heart of Christ on the matter of giving. Okay? Because as it turns out, God's Word has a lot to say about being generous and as always our great example to follow is Jesus himself so let's turn to 2nd Corinthians chapter 9 which is our primary uh, text for this message and we'll start this morning with the first two verses so 2nd Corinthians 9 verses 1 and 2 now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Okay, so what Paul's talking about here is a relief fund, first of all, money, that the Corinthian Christians are giving to support the ministry in Jerusalem, which was a part of the church's ongoing outreach. Acts 11, Uh, 29 and 30, describes a previous collection of funds for the Jerusalem church. It says that the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul in a previous uh, event. So those previous funds were sent because there was a a coming great famine uh, in Jerusalem at the time. It was during the reign of Claudius, was prophesied by Agabus, he was one of the first century prophets to the church in Antioch. And so God not only informed and prepared the church for what was coming ahead of time through the church leaders, but he also provided the money that would be needed for the church in Jerusalem to continue its ministry through the giving of the church members at Antioch and elsewhere. And then in Corinth, in our story today, Paul is once again coming to collect money from the church that will be used to support the ministry in Jerusalem. And in verse 1 of our text, interestingly enough here, Paul refers to the ministry for the saints. That word ministry in the original Greek is the word diakonia. It's the exact same word that is translated as relief back in Acts 11.29 that we just read when Paul's collecting money for uh, the Jerusalem church then. As well, he mentions this weekly collection in other places in the first uh, three verses of 1 Corinthians 16. Paul says now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, that's Sunday, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. When I arrive, I will send uh, those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So part of Paul's ministry clearly as a leader in the church is to collect money from the church and distribute it where it is needed to fund the ministry that God has set before them, okay? Let's keep reading now, verses 3 through 5. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So Paul is not only asking uh, for the church to give to the ministry, but he actually, he actually expects them to give willingly and generously, which begs the question, why is Paul so assuming as to expect the church members to give so lavishly toward the ministry? Let's keep reading and we'll see. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So in verse 9, when Paul says that he's distributed freely, he's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Uh, he's quoting Psalm one twelve nine there, which is not only a description of the righteous followers of God, who give freely or generously, but it's also a reflection of Jesus Christ who distributed freely to us. And in that, Paul is painting a picture here for us to show us that generosity is the way of Christ. That's the precise reason that we are to be generous givers as well. Okay, now, listen, there is a host of outcomes products of our giving which paul talks about in this passage and we'll talk about them too and they're all wonderful but none of those are the primary reason that we are to give generously unfortunately there are leaders in some elements of the church who have sold the idea to believers all over the world that the reason we should give generously is because of what we receive back money material blessings divine health, all manner of wealth and prosperity. And the truth is, there are innumerable blessings, material and otherwise, that can come as a result of generous giving. That's true, but those are not the reasons that we're commanded by God and expected by the church fathers to give generously. I just want to be crystal clear on this point. The reason That we're to give generously to the work of Jesus Christ is because Jesus Christ gave generously to us. That's it. That is why we give. That is also what makes stinginess and greed and selfishness so insidious, so undermining to the church because those character traits are vehemently anti-Christ. They go against everything, that he is and that he taught. We, followers of Jesus Christ, are to emulate him in our lives, right? Ephesians 5.1, Paul said, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So we're supposed to live and act like Christ, which means that generosity should be a hallmark in the life of every Christian because Jesus was extravagantly generous to us. And then in response to living out that Christ-likeness that is generosity, God does promise us all wonderful things, many wonderful things. In verses 6 through 8, Paul says, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It's wonderful. And then verse 10, he says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So obviously, as we give generously, he gives back to us generally. He heaps blessings on us. And I I can't even begin to tell you in the time that we have today all of the ways that these verses have proven true time and time again in my own family. In fact, the more that we committed to God a few years ago, most of you know the story, we sold everything and moved 5,000 miles away to Alaska to go into a full-time ministry up there, gave everything away, sold out, moved away, gave all that we had to God. And we have seen a return on that in ways that I I don't have time to describe. He's so faithful. He's consistently blessed us and provided for every single need. But there's another reason for His generosity to us. There's another reason beyond simply rewarding us for our faithfulness to Him, which Paul explains in the next verse. Okay, let's read verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So Paul says that God is generous to us so that we will in turn be generous toward others with what he's given us. Okay, generosity demands a response. I stopped just short of saying generosity is a debt that we're obligated to pay back. Of course, because we know God has been generous to us in ways that we could never pay back, right? What Christ did for us on the cross is a gift, not a loan. We know that. But his ongoing generosity to us, in the form of the daily blessings that he pours into our lives, that he heaps onto us, which is what Paul is talking about here, that generosity demands a response. And again, this is the problem with the the prosperity gospel. The idea that God dumps out his blessings on us so that we can wallow in our own wealth and luxury while those all around us are suffering spiritually and physically. It is the very height of arrogance. No, Paul says that God is generous toward us so that we can be generous toward others in turn. Andy Stanley said it this way, Remember what your mother told you when you had two cookies and your sister had none? Quick, eat them both before she can wrench one out of your greedy little hands. (laughs) Probably not. She would say, share. What do we tell our own kids, nieces, and nephews when they have more than they need and a friend or sibling has none? We tell them to share. Watching someone eat two cookies in the presence of someone who has none doesn't seem right, does it? We feel compelled to say or do something. Perhaps that's why Jesus said give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Matthew 5 42. Imagine seeing the world from God's point of view. Imagine being able to see everybody in the world who has two cookies and everybody who has none all at the same time. You would probably say something. You would tell everyone to share. If God has blessed you with more than you need it's so that you can share your abundance with those who have need. Generosity demands a response, and we do that primarily through the church. Okay, throughout the New Testament, we see believers bringing their tithes and offerings to the church. It's in Acts 2, it's in Acts 3, And of course, Paul's travels, money was collected at the churches and then distributed by the church leaders. In Acts 6, we find that the Jerusalem church had a daily feeding program for the most vulnerable among them. So the church would collect funds from the believers and then they would use that money to minister to those in need, both spiritually and physically. And then Paul explains at the end of verse 11 that when we're generous by giving through the church, God is ultimately glorified, as he's worshipped, and as a result of the generosity of his people, it all comes back to Jesus Christ as he is worshipped. Jesus being the focus, even through our material blessings that he pours into our lives. So when we're blessed with jobs, when we're blessed with income, all the things that make our lives better, we should never make the mistake of thinking that receiving those blessings was the sole point of the blessing. No, we're blessed so that we can turn around and be a blessing to others, ultimately so that God will be glorified through our worship, which Paul says again in the last part of this chapter. Okay, so let's finish reading this chapter from verse 12 to the end. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. When we are generous with that which God has blessed us, Paul says we cause other people to glorify Him. It all comes back to Him. And yet there's one more really important point to be made here when we talk about generosity because what we define as generous can be very subjective, different for each person. And so when Paul uses the word generosity, first of all in verse 13, that is the Greek word haplotes. It literally means a copious bestowal, or bountifulness, or liberality. In other words, Paul's definitely not referring to our leftovers, or our excess, or whatever we think we might be able to spare. No, Paul is talking about copious, bountiful, liberal giving. This is lavish giving. It's extravagant giving, okay? generosity is extravagant giving that's what it means to be generous and it fits perfectly with the teachings and example of Jesus himself and so I think in order for us to get a really good understanding of just how extravagant Jesus commanded us to be in our generosity we need to compare some of the old covenant requirements with the new covenant requirements subsequent to this sacrificial work of grace by Jesus Christ Because when we talk about giving in the church, and specifically uh, when we talk about giving money, a lot of people want to know, hey pastor, what am I required to give? How much am I required to give according to the Bible? And most of the time they want to talk about tithing, which we see references to all throughout scripture, both the Old and New Testaments. And so people want to know If they're still required to tithe under the new covenant and this has a direct bearing on what we define generosity as again ultimately what we really need to know is what did Jesus have to say about this okay so let's talk about tithing and more to the point how much giving equals true generosity according to Jesus all right and just before we do that We need to define what tithing actually is because even that is often uh, misunderstood in the church today. The word tithe in the Hebrew language is the word maasar, which literally means tenth or payment of a tenth. So 10% of everything that was owned, everything that was gained in the Old Testament was to be given to the work of God according to the command of God under the Mosaic Law. It's recorded in Leviticus uh, 27, 30 through 34. It says, every tithe of the land whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. That's a a reference from earlier in the chapter regarding those who wanted to buy back unclean animals uh, from the priest that were not fit to be sacrificed unto the Lord. So they could buy them back from the priest if they added a fifth. More to the original value. Verse 32, And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that passes under the herdsman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. So, so when we talk about tithes and offerings in the church, the tithe, just for information, is literally 10% of your, your income, your increase, okay? So if you make $1,000 a week, uh, $52,000 a year, and you put $50 a week in the offering, that is not a tithe because that's not 10% of your income, okay? That is an offering. You're only tithing if you're actually giving 10% according to Scripture. And we see that under the Old Covenant here. In fact, uh, we see it before the Old Covenant, under uh, the Mosaic Law, before the Mosaic Law was instituted. In Genesis 28 22, Jacob commits 10% or a tithe of everything that God gives him back to the Lord. In Genesis chapter 14, when God gave Abraham a great victory over the king of Elam, he was returning from battle and he was met by a priest of the Lord named Melchizedek. And during that encounter, Abraham gives Melchizedek, the priest, a tenth or a tithe of all that spoil that he'd taken from the losing armies. Abraham tithed on all of his increase back to the Lord through the priest Melchizedek. So tithing was actually practiced uh, before, long before the Old Covenant. But let's see what changed, because there was a lot of change from the Old Covenant to the New then. In in Exodus chapters 20, 21, uh, 22, 23, the, the book of Leviticus, other parts of the Old Testament, we see the Old Covenant, including the Ten Commandments, spelled out for us. These were rules for God's people to live by that touched every single area of their lives. Rules about what to eat, what not to eat, what to wear, what what they shouldn't wear, where to worship, when to worship, how to worship, rules about how to treat each other, how much to give to God, where to give it, when to give it. These rules governed everything that God's people did on a daily basis. So the Lord put forth before the people this set of expectations for giving expectations for giving their time, their energy, their abilities, their money, their goods, their devotion, all of it. It was all intended, by the way, to be a form of worship from his people back to him. Again, it was the response to generosity that we're to have by his people by being generous in turn. But under the old covenant, it was all based on percentages, Percentages of their lives and possessions. You gave a percentage of your time, a percentage of your money, a percentage of your life. Everything was regulated to offer God worship, okay? The first uh, four verses of Leviticus chapter 16 says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. In other words, you can't just waltz in here anytime you feel like it and make an offering to me. If you do, you're going to die. For I will appear, he says, in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. He shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. Man, I'd have that tattooed on my forehead just so I got it right in the mirror before I went in there, right? This whole chapter and really the entire book of Leviticus goes on and on and on about how and when and how much to give to God. These were very specific rules about exactly how we are to worship Him. And then again in Leviticus 27, as mentioned, the tithe is introduced into the Mosaic Law the Old Covenant. Equally important is the fact that He commanded His people to tithe here is to note the fact that the tithe, according to God, already belongs to Him verse 30 again says every tithe of the land whether the seed of the land or the land of the land or of the fruit of the trees is the Lord's it is holy to the Lord so he already owns it it already belongs to him and here he's saying as a part of your worship i want you to offer it back to me so that it can be used to carry on and support the work of the ministry and so even the tithe was intended to be a form of our generosity in response to his generosity so under the old covenant all giving whether it be worship sacrifice sacrifice devotion it was all regulated and what portion of each aspect of your life was to be given to God was all spelled out in these rules and regulations and then along comes Jesus and everything changes right we know that we're now living under the new covenant there's a lot of talk these days about grace, as there should be. Without grace, we'd all be in big trouble right now. Scripture is very clear on the matter. We're saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2.8. So without a doubt, grace is something that we need to talk about, and we do often. Where the issue of grace, or the theology of grace, becomes distorted is when we start believing that the law of grace, the new covenant, somehow uh, makes everything that is required of us by God less. And so as long as we say we believe, it doesn't matter how much we give to God in any area of our life because we're covered by grace. That is a misunderstanding of Scripture. That is a big, big mistake for us to make, okay? The very definition of grace is Jesus Christ dying on a cross for you and me. You want to talk about paying a price. Grace doesn't mean that he's made a way for us to give less. Grace means he's made a way for us to give everything. And just in case I haven't convinced you yet, let's just compare for the last few moments the covenantal relationship with God and how it changes under the new covenant according to Jesus. These are his words, okay? Matthew 5, turn to Matthew chapter 5, uh, in verse 17, he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, the iota is the Greek word for yod, which is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the dot was the part of that letter used to differentiate between the different Hebrew letters. In other words, the tiniest, most seemingly insignificant mark on every letter of the law will be fulfilled in Christ. Now listen to this part. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. He, he doesn't say whoever omits or deletes one of these commandments even. He says whoever even relaxes one of the least of them Will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. These are very strong, very clear words. And as we read on, we see exactly what Jesus meant by that, okay? He didn't come to set us free from having to make any commitments to God. He came to set us free from the sin that keeps us from being able to make commitments to God. You see, our, our righteousness before Christ was only as good as the last sacrifice. But now in Christ, the sacrifice needed to secure our salvation has been satisfied. So he came by uh, because by our own power we could never, ever, 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 we were never going to be able to earn our way into a right relationship with him. That's legalism and, and the Israelites proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that it does not work. We could not and we cannot earn our way into a right relationship with God. There are no set of rules that we can follow. There is none. There's no no set of rules that will earn our way into it. So Jesus did what we cannot do. He fulfilled the law. He satisfied the requirements of the law. His grace did for us what was impossible for us to accomplish. And so Jesus then, as a result of, of his grace, of his work, he makes very clear what our generous response to his work of grace is to be. He tells us what it was before his work, and he tells us what it is after concerning this law. And, and by the way, we're talking about universal moral law. We're not talking about the ceremonial law, okay? Let's read Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, meaning under the old covenant, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Really? That isn't exactly easier than the old rule. It's much easier to simply say you're guilty of murder if you actually murder someone. Now he says, you're in the same way to be liable of judgment if you're angry with your brother. That requirement didn't get easier, right? It got much more difficult. Skip down to verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That didn't get easier. The requirement for staying free from adultery just became far more difficult. Verse 31, it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Gee, that didn't get easier. Verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, under the old covenant, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. That requirement didn't get easier. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other also. Seriously? And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. Come on. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Come on, Jesus. This is a little harsh. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. None of this got easier. What he's requiring now is asking far more from us than before. Let's read verse 43. You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That makes sense to me. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's definitely more difficult than hating your enemies. And yet that is to be our generous response to his generous gift of grace in our lives so in the old covenant God's people were required to go so far so far for God under the new covenant we're required to go all the way in other words Jesus says no more percentages I want it all I want all of you all of your heart all of your worship all of your energy all of your devotion All of your possessions, all of your resources, all of your passion. I want you to commit all that you are and all that you have and all that you care about to me. Under the old covenant, he required a portion of your day devoted to worship and prayer. Under the new covenant, what does he require? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17. Rejoice always. Pray always without ceasing give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you we can't do any of it without Jesus Christ he's the fulfillment of all of it that's why he says the greatest commandment is love God with all your heart soul mind and strength and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself because it's all summed up in that we look at this and say Jesus how could I ever how there's no way I can hardly get out of the house without being mad at somebody. How can I do this? It's in Christ. And by loving Him and others the way He loved us, what is it? It's generosity. It's how the law is fulfilled in Him and how we get to experience that fulfillment. You see the difference? It used to be a part-time deal. This isn't a part-time deal. God wants full-time, full-on commitment and nothing else will do. And likewise, uh uh-oh, with our money we compare the old and new covenants and we see that he requires so much more of us now than he did under the old covenant in every area of life so why do we treat the money part any different of course it's because we don't want to give away our stuff of course we don't want to give away our income we like our stuff we work hard for our money hey i like stuff believe me i'm not telling you by the way that you have to go out and drain your checking account tomorrow and put it all in the offering bag and send it to a missionary. No, what I'm saying is the same principles that apply to every other part of our lives in this context of old and new covenants, it also applies to our money. Under the old covenant, he required 10% of our income to be given back to him. Under the new covenant, he wants it all. But what does that mean? right? What are you saying? Because, of course, we're taught in Scripture to take care of our families, right? To pay our bills, to store up for lean times. But why? So that we can minister to others, including our own families. So, no, we don't sell everything and give all our money to the poor and go live under a bridge. That's not what he tells us to do. However, in Luke uh, chapter 11, verse 42, Jesus is chastising the Pharisees for their lack of understanding, and commitment to God and he says but woe to you Pharisees for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God these you ought to have done without neglecting the others he's saying to them you pay your 10% great you should do that but can't you see that there is so much more that the father wants from you you're still focused on percentages but he wants it all We get so hung up in the church today about whether or not we're supposed to give 10% of our income, and people ask me, and they're they're never asking because they want to know if it's okay to give more, right? When people start asking about the tithe, it's because they want to know if they have to give that much or can they give less. I can't remember. In fact, I don't think my wife and I have ever given only 10% of our income to the church. We start out every paycheck... And we give 10% of our gross income to the church as a starting place. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with your first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So we start out First things first, at every paycheck, giving 10% of our gross income to the church because that was God's standard for his people. And so we use that as our personal standard. And then every gift of missions, every special event, every special need, every guest teacher, it's all over and above that. So when we look at our overall giving to the church at the end of each year, it is far more than 10%. Many of you are sponsoring Uh, testimony books that are shipped out to homes all over our zip code each month which is a big part of our outreach program which is awesome it's wonderful and I've never told anyone this before and I probably won't ever mention it again but in the context of this message I want you to know that my wife and myself and our two boys are sponsoring more books than any other family in this church now please hear what's in my heart because I'm not saying that to boast in any way or to shame anyone whatsoever. I'm telling you that because I want you to know that we're not expecting anyone to, to do anything that we're not doing ourselves, right? We don't make a lot of money, but we give to the building fund. We give to the missions fund. We give to the outreach fund. We give to every single person that speaks at or speaks into this church. We give to special projects and specific needs as they arise. And all of that is is well over and above our tithe, the 10% of our gross income that we give at every paycheck. Why? Because Jesus wants us to give everything, just as he gave us everything. And as we give back, we become generous people. And our generosity is not only a form of worship back to him, but it also causes other people to worship him in turn. You see, at the end of the day, it's all about him. It's all about Jesus Christ. So what are we waiting for? Why not give generously, lavishly, extravagantly? Many of you do. But instead of us asking... Pastor, how much do I have to give? Why don't we start asking, how much more can I give? Why don't we open our hearts to become as generous as we can possibly be? Honestly, what is it that we could ever hope to gain on this earth by hoarding our own resources, which God has given us again? What is it that can possibly hold a candle to the immeasurable and eternal rewards that we receive when we give everything to God there's nothing there's nothing that we can ever attain or any amount that we could ever amass in this life that will ever compare to what we will enjoy for all of eternity by living generously now because it is the way of Christ and it demands a response an extravagant response That is generosity. And Jesus is our ultimate example. He gave everything. And so should we. Let's pray.